the questions, where learning to ask the right questions can help you achieve lifelong success. Now, here to help you ask all the right questions is award-winning author, international speaker, and business strategist, Laura Stewart. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everyone, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. I blipped and October went faster than I could have ever imagined, but we are back on track now doing two episodes a month. And I am loving being with you here in the United States. We're at the end of November for this particular show. And I have no idea where time has gone because it's at the end of the year now and everybody's on this huge ramp up. One of the things I just want to remind everybody is every day in your business is an important day and not to think too far ahead. Focus on what you need to get done while doing some planning. And with that in mind, I have an amazing, amazing guest for you today. Somebody I've had on the show before. He is my personal advisor, my go-to, somebody I don't make very many moves without. And if I do, I often go, what would Peter say or do before I actually take action on things? And I found that when I don't ask myself that question, I always end up having to go back to Peter and ask him a question. So let me introduce you all to uh, my personal advisor, a friend, the person who negotiated my book contract and helped many of my clients and friends navigate the business world. I'm going to introduce you to Peter Hoppenfeld today. He's widely recognized and I, I love his intro. So I'm going to read his intro and add a little bit to it as the go-to attorney and advisor in the representation of direct marketers, speakers, authors, information marketers, thought leaders, mm -hmm. entrepreneurs, and domestic and international training companies, and their founders in all aspects of their legal and business affairs. He's a seasoned transactional commercial attorney with direct marketing, internet marketing, distribution, licensing, marketing, branding, and operational expertise. One thing I can tell you about Peter is he's probably forgotten more than you will ever know from everything I've learned about him. He does strategy. He does legal. He understands marketing. They're, one of the things that people say to him, he's a lawyer who understands marketing and a marketer who happens to be a lawyer. Personally, I think that Peter is the person to help you think through every aspect from creation of your business to growing your business. I've engaged him to help sell a couple of my clients' businesses as well. So everybody, please welcome to the show, the one and only Peter Hoppenfeld. Hey there, Laura. I hope I can live up to the intro. Oh, and I, I curtailed it. Like I know. Really okay. well, compared to what I wanted to say about you, because I know that it would make you um, blush quite a yeah. bit. Yeah, it's good to be on board. Yeah, it's great to have you back on the show and always fun to get a chance to chat with you. I want to dive in because we have so much that I want to talk about. Number one being one of the things that you do beyond what a number of attorneys do is you do like that strategic advisor stuff. So you're not just a lawyer you're thinking through not only starting a business, but all the way through to the life cycle end of perhaps selling your business. What are some of the things that people really need to be thinking about from day one? So, you know, it's a good question. I, I always say strategy first, lawyering second. So, you know, you really need as a business creator or business owner, I always say, do something you like. 
um, understand the marketplace. And I view, you know, businesses as having a life cycle or having their move. You're either moving a product or you're moving services from A to B. So understand who your market is, who your customer is, and how you're going to get your product or service to market. Um, through the course of my career, which is now close to 40 years, the tools have changed. And I just keep adding tools to my tool belt. But I think the smart entrepreneur is someone who has a pretty good sense of the value of what they're doing and understand who their customer is. Uh, and once you, it sounds pretty simple, but once you have that, the various magic sauces can be applied. I also, um, because of the, the, the drastic increase in information that entrepreneurs are being are, are getting, I mean, it used to be it would be a trickle of training, and now it's like a under garden hose. It's a fire hose, right? Of direction and training and opportunities to learn, and a lot of you know experts teaching and consultants consulting, and a lot of rules being thrown at marketers. Like you have to do A, B, C, and D, and you have to do one, two, three, and four. And your 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 marketing hero who's now on tour or doing webinars is telling you, you have to do this, this, and this. And I, I clients come to me, new clients come to me some all the time saying, I don't know where to start. <laughs> uh, because I'm being bombarded with um, ideas and I, I can't do them. Or so-and-so says I have to do a podcast, but I don't like the way I sound. Or so-and-so says I need to do videos, but I don't want to like the way I look. Or someone. The, the most successful clients I have are the ones who have been able to take all that advice and mesh together the things they're most comfortable with or the things they feel they could be most effective with in a unique way. And set your own rules. Certainly learn from the best, but apply it in your own way. And as a result of that, many of my clients be get, become successful and they become the how-to people teaching people how to do business. But again, the clients who've been my longest term clients and life cycle of business isn't always a sale, that's rare. Um, the clients that have scaled and grown and been most comfortable and successful have the ones who have kind of forged their own path. Okay, well, in that forging their own path thing, there's always a roller coaster, right? They like you to believe it's always a upward trend. Zero to hero and hero to zero. Yeah. As you're advising them around there, are there ways to help minimize some of that zero to hero, zero to zero roller coaster to protect yourself along the way? things to think about? Well, it's still in the mind of the entrepreneur. So okay. there are, you know, there are clients and entrepreneurs and people that I've observed who rest on their laurels. And once you do that, you're probably destined to fail. Uh, it's it, it's not like you re, you attain a certain level of success and think you could just ride, ride it out. Um, you can lose track of who your audience is. You can lose track of how you market to them. Certainly, you know, the change and boom of social media and other tech and digital platforms and methods has changed the changed the game completely. Uh, a lead generation tool you used yesterday may not work next week. Yeah. Um, a message you used yesterday may blow up tomorrow. Um, the ability to real for your clients to get value from your product may diminish because you haven't worked on on improvement. And, you know, you, and you're resting on your laurels that way. Um, 
So the what the best way to avoid the roller coaster is to be on top of your game, both in terms of the, the your product and your service, and being in touch with your audience. The other thing that's very important is understanding where, as the founder of a business, when it's time to relinquish some control, and when you're no longer equipped to run a business of the size you've built. So it's one thing. And it's a big accomplishment to build a million dollar business. People may poo poo that. It's hard. But what's even harder is to go from 1 million to 5, and 5 million to 10, and 10 to 50 or more. And the most successful situations I've been involved with were with CEO founders who reached a point saying, I don't have the ability to manage this in the way I did when it was out of my den, and have the guts to relinquish some control to a more professional leader, or have said, I need to learn how to do X, Y, and Z. Right. I have a friend recently who I was talking to and he said, I don't understand why I'm not going anywhere. And we talked about that. He was at that one to 2 million level and he'd been there for about 10 years. And he decided that he needed to bring somebody else in to run the company. And now he's a $12 million company. Bringing somebody in, since you raised this point, I would imagine that there's a lot of questions you need to be asking yourself and that other person to make sure that you, because you could nosedive with. But remember, uh, let's talk about the phrase, bring someone in. Don't give away equity, people. Okay. Equity is the, is the golden egg. It's not something to be bartered. It's not something to be handed out like candy. Um, you know, the dot-com boom 20 years ago kind of made the whole idea of equity as being like, you know, pocket change. But that's ownership, and it's forever. So don't give away equity. That's number one. Number two, please, ladies and gentlemen, avoid the word partner. A partner is the most dangerous type of business relationship you could ever have. And a lot of people use it just as a descriptive of a business colleague. And they think it gives, it appears to give more clout. Here's my marketing partner. When you say someone's your partner, you're responsible for their, for their actions. Okay. Without limitation. So that guy you said was your partner in a meeting yesterday now goes to Japan and makes a representation on behalf of your company and you're responsible. So, I mean, I, I, you may have heard this story, Laura. I once had this conversation with a, a, a soon-to-be new client at the time who loved the, kept using the phrase partner in the conversation. And I said, and I explained why it was a problem. And I said, do me, I'll tell you what, every time you use the word partner, you owe me a hundred bucks. He said, deal. And we hung up the phone and a half hour later, he texted me, I owe you 200 bucks. Because he, he just couldn't help himself. So if you're bringing somebody on, Mm -hmm. They're an employee. You have a contract. They may have incentive bonuses. They may have parachutes. They may have all kinds of perks, but you don't make people equity owners unless it's part of a plan and they earn it. Okay. You can hire someone with a good employment agreement and it might be a mistake. And honestly, not every hire is going to be perfect. It's like, you know, to have a good transition period. You don't take your foot off, take your hands off the steering wheel right away. You make sure it's somebody who really gets your business and is really making good decisions. 
All right. So you, there's a couple of things I want to unpack a little deeper in there, Peter. You talked about when you bring somebody on, get the whole no equity thing, which I did badly a couple of times and ended up having to exit some of those out. But you mentioned buyouts, earnouts, and um, golden parachutes, whatever they are. So I, if I read it correctly, and from my personal experience as having been advised by you and others, have contracts. If yeah. you're bringing somebody yeah. in, any employee all of any time. level, correct? All the time, with whoever you do business with, with and vendors, manufacturers, like? suppliers, contractors, employees, everything's in writing. No handshakes. What kind of stuff in there? <sighs> I, and I know this is a huge thing and they need to bring somebody I mean, in, but what well, are some things they need to be looking at their existing contracts if they have them? I know the, the get out of the company clause, right? <laughs> well, I mean, you want to be very clear about what, who's doing what to whom and for how much money. Okay. What are the terms and conditions about that? If content is being created, who owns it? If materials being licensed, what's, what are the terms? Or if, if a product, right, the rights to a product are being licensed, what are the terms for how long? How do you get out of the deal? When I'm working with many of my clients, I have, just have a blanket rule. We can terminate on X day's notice, period. A lot of agencies in the media world want to get, you know, six month, 10 month, 12 month commitments. Nonsense. Earn your keep. And confidentiality is important. You know, non-solicitation of customers or contractors or employees is important. Uh, you know, each different kind of agreement has different pressure points. Um, but you want to be clear and unequivocal about the core pieces of the deal. Okay. That I know from having had multiple partnerships that the out clauses and who owns what and the non-solicitation is important. But Absolutely. yet so many people still are like, no, we get along really well. I don't need contracts. Everything's going to be really good and rosy. That's, that, that's we bring just, a contract in. We're just setting ourselves up no, for nastiness. That, that's just actually, actually just symptomatic of an amateur. Okay. Uh, and actually, um, from my experience, it's just the opposite. Um, I think people respect the the need for contractual terms, and they understand that you may have a long-term relationship with someone, and that business could be bought or sold, and you want to make sure that that deal is memorialized for as long as it runs. So, you know, the, the next owner doesn't know anything about your handshake. So have that in your contract. Everything in writing. Okay. And if somebody, if somebody pushes back, don't do business with them. In, in my mind, it's the sign of someone who's not serious. Contracts don't mess up relationships. People mess up relationships. Exactly. Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly. Okay. All right. So that leads into the other part I wanted to unpack where you said don't use the term partner. Yeah. That term partner nowadays is being bandied about left and right. My influencer partner, my marketing partner, um, my in the tech world, these are my cybersecurity partners. How, how do you reframe that in a way that doesn't use the word partner, but is letting somebody know that here's my go-to person that I prefer to bring in on these kind of deals? 
So you use terms like expert, vendor, contractor. Okay. There are various ways to to talk about it, but the phrase partner, and I might I'm I might be a little bit too much of a stickler on this, but I've seen it be a problem. Partner connotes a business relationship that is unprotected, in, like an LLC or a corporation could be, and okay. I think it's something to avoid. It also connotes that people have the the ability to bind you to a deal, which you know. To, to, to make an agreement with someone and they come back to you and say, well, your partner agreed. Well, that's not good enough. So I, I, I tend to try to train my clients to avoid it. All right. Now, I'm kind of back in the tech world. I'm working with uh, one of my friends in her company mm -hmm. doing business strategy and channel stuff and everything. And there's this big shift in that world around cybersecurity and partnering that here's my cybersecurity partner. Resource. Say that again. Resource. Resource. Okay. Expert. Vendor. Okay. Now in some of these cases, those companies are the ones actually handling anything that happens cybersecurity wise. Okay. What are things that you need to think about, whether it's in a tech company or any business, if in your business that person hand, you know, you hand off. Well, and there's a delineation. Like, like any other contractor or vendor relationship. I mean, every modern business right now has su companies supporting various elements of their business, whether it's a manufacturer, whether it's a personal placement company, whether it's a, a website designer or a graphic designer or an ad agency or a media buyer or, or, copywriter. or a copywriter, exactly, uh, or a podcast recording company or a host. Everybody is building their businesses based upon using third parties. It's, this is no different. Okay. Now, the key on cybersecurity, as an example, is making sure that their their expertise matches your business and the data you're collecting and the activities you're doing. So that has to mesh the tech side of your business with the so the cybersecurity consultant, so that they can actually do the other right party for the type of business you run. I have some clients who are very heavy with huge email lists, others with tech, you know algorithms, others with patented, you know, procedures or processes, others with uh, gathering demographic data off of marketing campaigns, the same cybersecurity company may not work for any of those different niches. So I think it's your homework to make sure it's the right consultant. Okay. Because ultimately, if there was a problem with a database and you didn't have the right person in place, all that, all that expense is probably for waste. The other all thing right. to keep in mind, and you know this, Laura, is many companies in the tech world are, have either very large contracts with customers or they're doing government work uh, and they're making reps and warranties in their contract about things being protected. And you need to make sure that what your contractor says they can do, they can actually do, which means good due diligence. Then I see the flip side of that as if you're using that person as your resource for all of those things, then you need some sort of 
I'm thinking this through some sort of delineation at your contracts on your client side to say, here's where my responsibility and no, here's no, you don't need any of that. You're, you're responsible to your customer, period. Okay. Your vendor is being subcontracted. Ultimately, the, the entrepreneur, this that entrepreneurial business is on the front line of liability. So you're, you must have a contract with that cybersecurity expert, just like any other vendor that covers the, the, that pure situation. So there's appropriate reps and warranties by the cybersecurity company. They have the correct insurance to protect you. And if they mess up, you pass the liability to them. But the customer, the company's always primarily liable. I'm selling my service. I'm saying it's secure. The security is being done by a third party, but the customer's gonna come to me if there's a screw up. And I need to be able to go to the, to the cybersecurity vendor and say, no, 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 you made the mistake. You said you could do this or you, you did it wrong and, and they back you up. So there's no way of limiting your liability in the eyes of your end user clients? You can try, but that's not what they're hiring you for. Right? Okay. All right, you know, because I, I think of all these breaches and all that other stuff that's been happening lately, especially around PCI, you know, the credit card processing and things like that. And a lot of times you're using software to run your business and that company gets breached and your end client, Comes you to know, how do, how do you help yourself through situations like that? Is there any way, Peter? Well, the, the company itself should have insurance and the company itself is on the front line and should have indemnity by the cybersecurity company, which, which itself should have insurance. But you're, you're always on the front line in the product or service you sell to your customers. Okay. So protect yourself as best you can. And make, make sure your vendors can actually do what they say they do. Okay. And make sure that you're protected inside your contracts with them. Absolutely. If something goes wrong, right. they accept a responsibility right. for the yeah. downstream impacts. Yes. So if your end user company goes out of business because some hack came through them somehow, um, we see this a lot in the, the tech world, sadly, lately, because ransomware as a service is real. Yeah. <laughs> So things, things can happen. Okay, that's really good food for thought, Peter. Um, you know, the whole idea that using the word partner can have repercussions beyond how you think it means. Right. Um, I don't think everybody here wants to pay you 200 bucks every time they say it, but, you know, I'm all for that. Hey, cool. I'll give you my paper. <laughs> all right. So then let, let's go a little deeper in this conversation because a lot of the, your clients are people who do a lot of marketing and business via the web, mm -hmm. right? So they have products or services that influencers pick up, you know, like we can use the example of the Kardashians or, um, God, I'm, I'm blanking on some of the names of the people who they'll, there's one now for the, the thing where it gets rid of the belly fat, right? They've got all these supposed internet influencers that are promoting it, showing they got the services for free or whatever, and they're talking about it. Everybody seems to think, and I know this with a lot of authors as well, that if they get some celebrity to talk about their book 
or their product that it's going to launch, like getting on Oprah's favorite list. What are things you need to think about before you start bringing in or considering working with an well, influencer or a micro-influencer? Micro, well, influencer marketing works. Um, the question is, what type of influencer are you talking about? Is it relevant to your product? Okay. And it's used quite, quite a lot um, in terms of uh, digital marketing campaigns, period. It's, it's, it is prolific. There's nothing bad about it. The FT Federal Trade Commission makes it clear that if you have an influencer promoting a product, if they're being compensated, even if they're giving given products for free, they must say that they are a paid endorser. That's number one. Endorsers who have large audiences that are engaged are very valuable because their recommendation is typically, you know, there's a good chance that their audience will follow and give a pretty good uh, conversion rate. Okay. But by the same token, for example, I have clients, a couple of clients with millions of followers on Instagram, but I could get the same impact with 20 clients, with 20 influencers, with 10,000 rabbit fans each because it's about engagement and it's about trusted authorities who, if amenable to you or re relevant or consistent with your brand can be very, very effective. Um, and this runs the gamut from health and wellness to personal finance, to financial publishers, to consumer products. Um, a, 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 trusted, a, a trusted endorser, a, a person trusted by their audience can be a very effective marketing tool or piece of a marketing campaign campaign. Uh, and it's, it's very, 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 very common. There are full eight full large agencies uh, around just to provide influencers. Really? They just, all they do is set you up, you pay them a fee and they put in the influencers. Well, they'll find it. They'll, they'll give you a panel of influencers that could be amenable or good for your product. Absolutely. And they, Guessing those are all fee-based, fee-driven. Yeah. Yes. Versus a random somebody read your book or tried your random, product. Just a random it. somebody read your book is not going to per se move the needle. That might be a review or a testimonial that one could somebody could use on their own website or as part of their marketing. But the real effective digital campaigns these days are um, either a entrepreneur who has visibility themselves has built a huge platform and has a built-in community that recognize, recognize them for their expertise. And now maybe they have a book or a product or a service that they're, they're promoting to their community or um, relevant um, influencers that, that make sense to the brand. Okay. So then Define for me the difference between an influencer arrangement and an affiliate arrangement. So affiliate marketing tends to be email-based. Influencer marketing tends to be digital okay. on social media. So an affiliate email relationship, which are, there are massive networks of, of affiliate marketers. Uh, there are people with large lists who will, um, you know, mail for someone else for a fee or for a piece or for commission. You have a, a message that you have, or a, a funnel that you can prove uh, sells and converts. Okay. Let's say you're selling 
you know, a supplement of some sort, or you're selling software or, or an app, and you can show that X percent of messages that go out result in a sale. It shows that it's attractive and there's money to be made. You go to an affiliate network that may have a conglomerate of a hundred different emails, people with, or companies with email lists who will mail on behalf, mail that offer for a fee. So you're, you could be effectively walking into millions and millions of active email names of okay. which mail, a mail emails will go out with your, preferably with your content and your messaging that'll be tracked with a pixel or a cookie or a dedicated link that measures the effectiveness of the campaign. And we're able to allocate sales to a particular affiliate who gets paid. And I'm thinking based on something else you just said is that if you are going to be doing affiliate marketing or engaging with affiliate marketers or influencers, that you need to make sure that they're saying they're getting paid well, by doing this. Again, it's an email, and it's in it, it. You know, the on the email affiliate side, there's always been a re requirement to say that you're getting, you know, it, that you're a paid affiliate, that you're getting a commission. The challenge on digital ones and social media is it's not always easy to find the real estate, so to speak, to make the disclosure. Because the government just cracked down on some healthcare influencers. Yeah, and those were, yes, on and typically that was a TikTok or Instagram situation where they took shortcuts in terms of disclosing that they were paid endorsers. Okay. So you always want to be, if you're going to launch into that realm for whatever reason, make sure you do what you have to legally. Let everybody know you're right. getting your paid endorser or, or now, you know, hey, I love this product. I am getting paid to talk now, about it. Now, bear in mind, if if I am simply mailing on behalf, mailing the an email, email copy created by another company, um, I am not endorsing. I'm just mailing. So there's no need to disclose anything. However, if I run a newsletter, for example, every week, and I put a blurb in about XYZ product in my newsletter, I must disclose I'm being I'm being paid for that endorsement. Okay. But if I'm simply if I have an email list of a hundred thousand names, and I'm mailing, uh, a you know on behalf of a product, Laura, that you're selling or your book, I'm not endorsing. I'm just mailing. Even if there's a link in there that you get credit if they buy, I'm saying there's going to be a link and I'm going to get a commission, but I'm not endorsing. I'm just mailing. It doesn't say it's it's coming. It's just the delivery of an email. So you don't have to say I might get a commission. It's not like I'm saying I recommend this. I'm just mailing it. Okay. So there's no perceived on the part of the person receiving the email that because you've emailed, you're actually endorsing? The from is usually going to say it's going to be the from the name of the company you're, you're promoting, not, not from the mailer. Because I get requests all the time for people to have me be an affiliate for them, and they want it to come from my email. Well, that's a little bit different. But you, the, typically in mass-marketed affiliate marketing, the from is not from Laura. The from is from whatever whatever the product is. Okay. But if it's from you. Then you're then... As an implied endorsement. Okay. That's different. But that's not mainstream affiliate marketing. 
That's one of the reasons why I'm really picky about the guests on my show. And I get solicited all the time to have people on my show. And I'm like, if you're on my show, it's sort of a tacit, in some way, endorsement of what you're talking about. So if somebody's going to be selling something, I try to check them out in advance to make sure that my name's not getting attached to, you know, as best you can. I think that's a good not there. Okay. So taking all of those things into account, Peter, and the way the world's changing and growing, what are some trends that you're seeing happening with how the digital delivery of products and services and marketing and legal ramifications, because there's now a more global potential opportunity for your products versus just local. Like when you just did local marketing, you went to your chamber of commerce and all that. So there's more of a global digital impact. Are you seeing some trends going on? Well, I mean, you know, digital and internet marketing has been, you know, proliferating for, I, I tend to place 2008 as the real launch point. Right. When our last, uh, when the bank or banks, banking system took its hit and we had a real estate crisis. Um, I think, you know, this has been global. We've, we've moved from main, from Madison Avenue to main street now to global, um, you know, reach it for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Uh, but we, we've even gone beyond that now because, because of technology, we're able to target in a way that, you know, puts you in from main street to, you know, people's bedrooms. You can, you can pick out the eyeball, the avatar of your buyer or your lead in such detail that, you know, business really successful marketing funnels are demographically driven down to quite the minutia in terms of interests of who your potential buyers are. Um, so if anything, you know, the privacy issues are certainly a concern. Uh, some of the other, you know, regulatory stuff is just tracking, is just a, a mess, the end result of volume and the number of messaging and the number of marketers that are, you know, act out there. Okay. A lot of stuff I've seen, I see from the Federal Trade Commission, I saw 20 years ago. Um, people, you know, the, the people tend to be making, or making the same mistakes or trying the same scams, just the technology is different. But, you know, the market, the digital marketing tools are quite remarkable and getting more remarkable. And with the advent of AI, well, AI has been being, has been used for years in terms of build, you know building audiences. That's nothing new. Uh, we've been working clients have been working with avatars and in, in terms to build uh, media buying campaigns to target the the demographic down to the minutia that they want to have the greater likelihood of getting a buyer. It's been going on for a long time. AI as a content creation tool is another matter. Some applications are pretty remarkable. Other ones are free, are really scary, but I don't think they replace a human copywriter. I read copy every day. I can tell. If you're using AI to copyright, responsibility of you before you publish, making sure factual or not? Well, you're, you're, you're always putting in the prompts, Laura. Okay. AI is only as good as the prompt. So that's why there's a new... new uh, you know, new jobs called prompt engineers. Yeah, they make a lot of money too. Yeah, they do. They, yeah, they do. And there's good utility and bad utility for it. 
I can I read copy every day. I can I know, you know, in certain circumstances for long form like SEO articles, ChatGPT works works wonderfully. When it comes to being persuasive stuff, I you know, I, I sometimes I push back and say this doesn't sound like your voice. It doesn't sound like the the product's brand. But we'll see. And yet people seem to think it's the be all and end all and no, it will put everybody out of business. You have to actually experience it to make that kind of determination. A lot of it's been used for a long time. A lot of app development ultimately at its core is an AI, uh, you know, function. So what do you think has caused this media um, uproar over it? And now it's so top of mind with chat it's more readily, coming out. It's just more readily available to the general public. I mean, you know, Microsoft is adding AI to, to Word. Uh, it, part of it's been there already for years in terms of autocorrects and, and you know, suggested grammar. It's just going to take it a step further. AI is in people's face because it's more readily accessible to the average person. I don't believe the average person is really using it, however. Yeah. I, I do see some interesting things on social media where people are having their pictures created by AI yeah. or this or that, but that's still something quite small in terms of what those in the business world have been using right. behind the scenes. But it is a, it is a question, uh, you know, look at the SAG after strike. They're really no, concerned sure. about the AI. You got, well, they're concerned about being getting paid, uh, which I uh, totally understand. But they also had to change the business model because of streaming and on-demand content. So the, you know the days of uh, of live TV and just and even cable TV is completely different with the new subscription models that are being used. Although I was thinking the other day, Peter, because Disney just merged with Hulu and the whole HBO Max thing, where all these other things are on there. It's I feel like streaming is now cable. Is now what? I'm sorry. Is now cable. It, it's okay. You can get thirty different channels or forty different things. Yeah. It, to me, it feels no necessarily no different. What started out as something original is now they're going. Well, that wasn't very lucrative. Well, everything's on demand. So just you know, you can watch it when you want it, when you want it, and how you want it. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. So when we're thinking through all these different things and thinking to somebody's business and they're they realize they need to pivot somehow from your strategic perspective when a company comes to you and they say well we've been plateauing or starting to do a little downward trend is there some advice series of questions or things you talk to them about to help them go, here's a time for you to pivot or before they get to that, here's where you need to be thinking about some things. You know, that's, that's kind of not really my game. I mean, for the most part, I, I like with my long-term clients to be having strategic discussions well in advance of a crisis. Okay. Right. Um, Obviously. And the, the clients that are, most equipped for a pivot are the ones that have already planned for it. Okay, so how do they plan for that? They understand their market. They, they, they have their finger on the post of their customer and their marketplace. So I've had clients whose core product became obsolete or 
the utility or there are more competitors in, in their space that made it unprofitable or their audience aged out or their messaging changed because of geopolitics or boredom. Um, or the audience just stopped responding or the Facebook algorithm changed or the Google ad spend changed where the cost of the lead was, was too prohibitive to continue or they were bored with it. Or another opportunity arose where they can monetize things that they've already built in a completely different way. Or they're inventors and they create something else. Or they go on vacation for a year and come back and start something else. So it's a matter of thinking through, watching your numbers, watching your trends, and being aware of what your customers are buying and not buying. You always have to, it's always, cut. as far as I'm concerned, everything is customer driven. Does your message resonate? Do they? Do people want what you're selling? Do they like the way you're getting to them? Are you consistent with your voice? Do you give them service? Do you give them service? Do they get value? Do they get value? Do they get value? Are they loyal to you? Are you honest with them? Okay. Do they Those trust are, you? That's a big one. Hopefully they do. Hopefully. But that can change really dramatically. And you need to just be aware of that. You can't just you, go into, put your head in the sand and assume everything will stay the same. Zero, zero to zero. Do you recommend looking at things monthly, quarterly, weekly? I have clients who have their finger on the pulse of their audience every day. Okay. If they are marketing digitally, they are, I don't think it's a healthy thing to do, but I think from a business point of view, the tools are there. You know what your costs per lead are per campaign. You know what your sales are. If your cost per lead gets prohibitive, that that you know that that changes everything. So you need to have good tools to help need you manage and monitor. Absolutely, these absolutely, and those tools are readily available on the social media platforms absolutely. or third parties. Absolutely, it might need, you might need to work to aggregate it all, and there are tools to do that. But the, the metrics are available, and if you don't keep track and understand your those core metrics of your own business, well, shame on you. Yeah, but yet that seems to be one of the biggest downfalls of a number of entrepreneurs is they don't understand their numbers. They're not paying attention. They think the status quo will always stay the status quo. And they seem surprised. Um, I don't think surprised. I think they'll, they could just be, people get lazy. And that's where you can bring somebody in to watch it for you. I uh, know. I don't think I so. love that. Well, I mean, you can it, but you know, but again, not just watch it for you. You need, you know, watching it for you is just duplicating your own disinterest. Okay. You know, so instead of watching it, they need to be informing. Vibrant yeah, that can, that can work with a business. A business is a living thing. Okay. If you, if you get bored with it or it's beyond your own capabilities as a founder, you need a team that can build, can, that can, can maintain and grow and build. If not, it's time to exit. If not, it will exit itself. <laughs> the, the thought, you know, I mean, the, 
The sale of a business is a rare thing. Yeah. That's why, you know, giving people going, you know, getting stock in small companies as a reward, take the cash. Okay. I've been, it's, it's a rare thing or the entrepreneur who say, who looks at, the, you know, watches the business channels or reads the, the, you know, the business papers and thinks that they, their medium sized business should be getting the X times EBITDA upon sale are delusional. Multiples don't work for small, small and medium sized companies. A company will be sold if there's a buyer willing to pay you what you're willing to take. Period. Yeah, it doesn't matter what one person sold at. That doesn't mean your business is going to sell at that. In small and medium-sized businesses, that's irrelevant. What some what what are you willing to accept, and what's some, somebody willing to buy it for? Period. It's not like the real estate market where you can have a comp on a house down the street. There are no, no comps and no standards. Yes, as you start getting public companies, you could say in this niche industry, the typical sale was X times EBITDA. Fine. But that is the rare occasion for the small and medium-sized business. That's a really, really good point. I have a friend who went to sell their company, and it was a $3 million company, but they had no recurring revenue. And they got an offer of $20,000 to buy their business. They're just buying a customer list. Yeah, that's what they said. We're buying your customer list. You're, right. You don't even have contracts in place that guarantee these customers will stay. So it's not a $3 million company because there's no guarantee you're going to sell enough product exactly. in that year with recurring. And another one had a $1 million business and they got 450000 for theirs because of the way the numbers ran and the contracts. So Absolutely. these are really, really good points, Peter. Uh, want to start wrapping up and it's funny some people are on LinkedIn and they've made a couple comments and one of them Marion and Bartson said you've always said such great things about Peter oh well <laughs> <laughs> so you can tell I talk about you all the time well, to you. friends very, and people on nice. social um, any last thoughts that you want to leave my listeners to a lot of them are starting companies they have existing companies they're pivoting from more traditional marketing to digital marketing. Well, digital marketing stuff. is traditional marketing now. Now it is, but these are companies that still don't think that way. They think traditional marketing is the newspaper, it's um, direct mail, it's um, showing up at a, a trade event. I would say, uh, please, please enter the modern world, please. Pretty please. Um, <laughs> Uh, somebody the other day asked me, I was, did an interview about the one key piece of advice I would tell someone who was going to start a business. And I, my answer was do something you like. Um, be genuine about your messaging. Uh, please, if you think that newspaper advertising is really going to work, uh, please educate yourself about modern digital marketing, please. In some ways, it may be too late for you. Uh, and that might be the cause for the downfall of a business. Um, you know, I've been doing this a long time, and I just keep adding tools to my tool belt, and that's what I advise everybody on the call. Stay current. At least understand the jargon. Understand the dynamics of the marketplace you want to be in. Okay. And don't be afraid to ask for help from people who have experience. 
and I just got a text message from somebody watching, but, and they asked if you could just speak briefly. Well, they didn't say briefly, but they asked if you could speak to the, does it make sense to trademark um, a, a process, a product or an idea that you have? Okay, so let me do intellectual property law in two minutes. And you've heard this before, but we'll do it again. A trademark is a label for a product or a service, okay? It started back in common law England where basically you would say, this isn't the name of my product and you put a TM next to it. First use wins. The first person to use a trademark wins. Trademarks cannot be purely descriptive. What's that mean? You can't trademark ice cream for ice cream, but you could trademark ice cream for blue jeans. If you want de facto unequivocal absolute ownership of a trademark, you file it for registration in the United States with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office or internationally with various local you know, agencies. When you get it trademarked, registered, you get an R in a circle next to the mark. That's why you see R's in a circle. In order to do that, an examiner is looking at your mark and saying, when did you use it in commerce first? Meaning it's a label for a product or service that you sell, not a phrase that you use. I get that all the time. I want to read, trademark this phrase, but it's not associated with a product or service. So it's not protectable. As a trademark, it might be copyrighted. You copyright content. Like Taco Tuesday, that guy in New Jersey lost that battle. You know, probably, unless he had a product selling it, he had a problem. The best trademarks are things that mean absolutely nothing. Haagen-Dazs. <laughs> exactly. Haagen-Dazs meant nothing. But trademarks that become so ingrained with the product People can lose the trademark, like kerosene was a trademark. Oh. Sanka was, you know, it's now Sanka brand, although fairly anybody uses it anymore for instant decaf coffee or Band-Aid brand because Band-Aid became synonymous with a bandage, an adhesive bandage. Windows was having problems because how else do you describe what it is? Then again, there are companies you know, when your trademark starts being used as a verb, you're going to use lose control of it. Like you don't Xerox things, you, you photocopy things. But so Xerox, you know, is polices its use all the time. A patent is how you protect an idea, like an invention. Copyright is how you protect your words. All right. That is IP in two minutes. That's perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Right? If you don't want people to copy your name, you don't want there to be confusion. Having the URL doesn't do anything. Get that all the time. It's just an address. You should do a search before you start investing in a product that you put a name on. Anyone who doesn't do a trademark search in advance of launching a product is going to lose money. And that's just a matter of Googling whatever. No, not just Googling. It's Seek out a good patent and trademark attorney. Let them do a trademark search. That search is the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, as well as state da databases all around the country. First okay. use wins. You may have a great name, but a little old lady in Omaha has been using it for 30 years, and she's not online. She wins. If she chooses to go after you. And it happens. Okay. And they just texted me great feedback. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, I love it when people are watching the show live and they 
come up with these questions that we can ask the experts that I have on the show. So sure. thank you, Peter, very much for being thank here you. with me again today. You always get me thinking and my listeners thinking in ways that they weren't before, which is what it's all about, right? Because it's all about the questions. It's all about the questions. I, I want to thank you so much. And your website for people to find out more about you, I put it as peterhoppenfeld.com. So they can always go there, find out more about you and reach out to you. Absolutely. There's a contact form on there. I think there is. It's phoppenfeld at gmail.com. Okay. So phoppenfeld at gmail.com. You gotcha. I am on LinkedIn. You can send a message there. Uh, And I'd be glad to, you know, interact with anybody on the call. That's great, Peter. I always appreciate whenever I send somebody your way and your willingness to chat with them and Absolutely. push them forward, including me, always oh, kicking my ass. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you again, Peter. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Everybody, you know, my whole point of having this show is to help you move your business and your lives forward. I hope you took something from what Peter and I were talking about and maybe it'll help move the movie forward a little bit. And always you can reach out to Peter at phoppenfeld at gmail.com. I have his website just below this for people who are listening, um, who are watching for listeners on the podcast. It's peterhoppenfeld.com. And it will be in the description of all of this as well. At the end of the day, it's your business. You need to decide what you do. But I hope that this helps you move a little bit with understanding some of the decisions you need to make in your business. Have a great day, everybody. And remember, the right question. You've been listening to It's All About the Questions, starring Laura Stewart. Connect with Laura at itsallaboutthequestions.com and download a free workbook that will help you ask better questions starting today.